Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist for Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host this evening for the Gist of Freedom. Tonight, my guest is Furquan Strafford, Sr., and what we're going to be talking about this evening is the history of black blood blanks here in the United States. Good evening, Mr. Strafford. Good evening. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. And yourself? You know what? I really can't complain. It's a lovely day. Lovely day. Okay. Thanks for joining us this evening, and um, why don't you start out by telling our audience a little bit about you, a little bit of your history and what it is that you do and what brought your interest to the history of black blood blanks. Well, it's been about a 19-year journey, but first and foremost, before I go into this, I want to dedicate this show to my wife, my lovely wife. She's such a, a very intricate part of my life and what I do is very inspiration. And uh, my late aunt, who just passed away recently, and she has always encouraged me to continue on what I'm doing, and she was a big fan of me. And so God bless her soul. And, uh, you know, like I said, I just want to dedicate dedicate that to two special people in my life. But to answer your question, um, I started in the plasma industry back in 1994, um, I was attending Texas Southern University. I wanted to be a registered nurse and a paramedic. That was my goal. So after graduating from McCook Community College in McCook, Nebraska, I became the first African-American to receive my associate of science in pre-nursing. At the time, I really didn't understand the significance of that, but uh, the president at the time, Dr. Smallfoot, had called me to his office. I thought I was in trouble because um, – Coming from College Park, Georgia, and living in the urban environment, you pick up a lot of tendencies, and some of them good and some of them are bad. But when I went up to McCook, Nebraska, which is a small town, about 8,000 white people at the time, the only black residents were the people who were on the basketball team, so it was about maybe seven of us. So you only can keep a certain amount of -of out-of-state athletes. Well, once I graduated, and, well, when I'm – talked with Dr. Smallfoot. He gave me a book to read. It was called uh, A Letter to My Children, and I couldn't remember the name of the author, but in that book, uh, I think Bill Cosby had uh, endorsed the book and some other very prominent African-American men and women. But uh, Dr. Smallfoot really encouraged me to continue with my education. So when I left McCook, um, I went to uh, TSU, Texas Southern University, and uh, my first actual job was working in the plasma center. Texas Southern University had a great relationship with local businesses within the community. And uh, my counselor had a, um, you know, connection to the plasma center on Cullen. At the time, it was called American Plasma Center. 
Incorporated was in Cullen. So it was not too far from Texas Southern University. So um, that was my actually first job. I had got hands-on training. I was a phlebotomist. And I just noticed that majority of the, the donors coming into the plasma centers were African-Americans. And I asked my colleagues at the time, were there any African-Americans who owned the plasma center? And they said no. So I can recall like it was yesterday um, going to uh, lunch. And um, I heard the voice of the Lord say, one day you're going to start this plasma center. But before that, I became so fascinated with the entire process of collecting blood plasma that I would come in early reading the manuals and um, stuff like that because it just very interests me. I don't know why, but it did. So I would come in early and stay late. So from that point, that was in back, what, 1994, I worked at American Plasma Center for about a year and a half. I worked in all positions as far as, uh, you know, low-level management. Uh, I was phlebotomist, screener. I became a supervisor in the lab. I became a supervisor on the donor floor where I will be over maybe about six phlebotomists, and I'll make sure that they interact with the uh, guests, the donors, and, you know, just all the things that are, in guidelines according to the SOP to make sure that, you know, we are in compliance with the FDA. So from that point, I moved back home to Atlanta, Georgia. I think this was in 1996. Yeah, 1996. So then um, I worked at another plasma center. It was called Ceratech. And uh, I was working there and going to Georgia State at the time. I, I became a nursing student at Georgia State University. And I started working at uh, Ceratech Biologicals. They were located in uh, uh, by the uh, on the east side of Atlanta. So anyway, um, once I worked at uh, Ceratech, I guess I, I made it known to the wrong people that I had aspirations to open up my plasma center, and that you know they saw my uh, my zeal for the the, the entire process and, and so forth. I had a, just a natural passion for it. But one day I came into work and, I, and they told me that I was fired. And I really couldn't understand and I put my effort, hard effort into it and I was just really crushed because at the time I was married and um, I just, I was just trying to figure out how I was going to, you know, pay this, make sure we have money for this. I was also at Georgia State University. So, you know, it was just a lot of things going through my head. So, I can recall this guy named Rashid, Brother Rashid McCall. He introduced me to Charles Drew. Um, he told me, you need to go read this book by Dr. Charles Drew, find out who Dr. Charles Drew was. So I went in Georgia State uh, Library and found this book called One Blood, The Death and Resurrection of Dr. Charles Drew. So from that point, um, what I did was uh, I read that book like, four times, and I contacted the author, tried to find more information about Dr. Charles Drew, because up until that point, I had never heard of Dr. Charles Drew. And so, but once I heard about him and I did some research and, you know, just, you know, not having a father, you know, I grew up, you know, um, not having a father. You know, I was, uh, you know, my father was murdered when I was in my mother. He was murdered uh, June of 6, 1972, and I was born July of 6, 1972. So um, let me ask you about that, uh, Perquan, because you posted somewhere that you were in foster care as a child. Exactly, exactly. So what, um, age, did you, what age did you go into foster care? 
from the age of, of from from the age of seven to about twelve, thirteen, from seven to thirteen. And tell us a little bit about uh, Dr. Drew, Dr. Charles Drew. Well, Dr. Charles Drew is the pioneer of blood plasma, and he's pretty much my inspiration and my hero. And as you mentioned, going through the foster care system, um, you know, that experience really uh, can really change a person's life because statistic-wise, you know, you're not supposed to graduate from high school. You're going to be in the prison system. You're going to be homeless. You're going to be pregnant and so forth. And for me, you know, it would just, a level of, I guess, confusion. Like, I don't, I didn't understand why I was in the foster care system. But, um, you know, I had some bad experiences, in it, but I didn't let it get the best of me to the point that it would destroy my life and making the right decisions. But, um, you know, like I say, Dr. Charles Drew is kind of like, in a way, his legacy became a father image to me. You know, he was a family man. Um he was an activist for the African-American community. One of the things that I admire about Dr. Charles Drew is that he had a passion to educate African-Americans in the field of health and science. His his motivation in the medical field was to train African-Americans to give them confidence that they are just as equal and can compete on a medical level with other ethnic groups because during that time, uh, segregation was in place tremendously, and so um, it was stated that black doctors was not equivalent of that of white doctors. And so Dr. Charles Drew was an activist, and every time he went to go uh, do a, a public engagement speaking, he would always indicate he was an African-American, and he was an Omega man as well. And, um, you know, like the, Dr. Drew, he uh, organized the first mobile blood bank from the American Red Cross. He orchestrated the first um, plasma drive to the injured world soldiers in World War II, um, you know, because of his infrastructure with American Red Cross, he has set such a high bar. And I think, you know, it, it's, it's really time for the African-American race to really change our thinking, our views on life, and our purpose. Because from what I see every day, it's just the same old, same old. It's no leadership. It's so many followers because leaders do different leaders do different things. So everyone's doing the same thing. And so I just pray that this interview would touch the hearts that need to be touched and touch the ears that needs to be touched, that this message go forth and it bring about the results that I have worked hard for. Um, you know, not only is this about uh inspiration, but it's also dealing with medical aspiration as well as employment opportunities for others and just to give a different image. I think if we start promoting more positive things, I think a positive change will come. But every time you turn on the Internet or TV or the radio, it's always negativity and it's always the same old, same old, and I just want to make a change. And I just hope that the support from the African-American community comes on the board and you know, get behind someone that's different. I mean, I I can say my paper trail speaks for myself. I'm very humble. I don't really like to, you know, talk about my accomplishment because it's very humbling. And, you know, like I say, you mentioned about foster care, and I just pray that 
my testimony gives inspiration to all the kids, man, that's currently in foster care or about to get out, that if I was able to go through an accomplishment, I, I faced the same things that they faced, but it was the grace of God and my determination to just, you know, not to be a part of, of the statistics and be someone other than that. So you said that foster care period was between the ages of 7 and 12, 13? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Are you in contact with your foster parents? Uh, she passed on and went home with the Lord. So I had lost, you know, um, contact with her. But her name was Miss Cleo Harris. I never forget. Matter of fact, I had I went through about maybe four foster care um, homes. Um, they were abusive. I, I have never never sexual, but physical and verbally, you know, I was definitely beaten. You know what I mean? Sometimes I, I can I recall the incident where someone did something and I got blamed for it and that particular foster home parent would whoop us with the metal spoon. We had to hold our hands out, and she would whoop our hands, and our knuckles would be swollen. I'm talking about the long spoon that's in the cafeteria kitchen. But, you know, like I say, man, I I, I just thank God. I really do, man, for covering me through all the times, you know what I'm saying, like being homeless, being in foster home, living with this person, that person, just not really stability, but at the same time, I always had it in my heart and in my mind that I was going to rise up and be someone to. And that's something you should be very proud of. I'm sorry to hear about what you had to undergo, but I'm curious, uh, coming out of foster care at 13, who did you go to live with? Was it extended family or? Uh, I lived with my uh, my sister's first cousin and uh they were, it was a real horrible experience. And it's funny that you're bringing this stuff up because as I'm thinking about it, I'm just really, you know, just really humble, man, that, you know, uh, I didn't commit suicide or, uh, you know. But anyway, I, I went to go stay with my sister's first cousin, and it was my uh, my sister's father's first cousin. And, it was very abusive, man. It really was. It was very abusive and uh, physically, and um, you know, it was it was very abusive, man. And so I lived with him for a while, and to the point that I, I was I was screaming for help, and no one wouldn't help me. So one day, I went to uh, I think it was Kmart at the time, and I tried to shoplift a, a, a jacket because they didn't buy me a jacket. Well, I got caught. I went to juvenile. He tried to come get me out. I told him, I told him I don't want to. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. So from that point on, I think I stayed in the juvenile detention center for about maybe six months. I went to court a couple of times, and I told the judge I don't want to go back home. And I, I'd rather sit in that jail cell. And so they found the placement for me to go. Um, so I went there. I think for about two years to a group home for about two years. After that, so once I finished the group home, um, I think I was about 15, and so I moved with my mother and her significant other. So, okay. How did you learn to channel your energy uh, in such a positive way? Because uh, you went through a lot there. I mean, even coming out of foster care and then going into an abusive relationship, uh 
at the hands of your sister's uh, significant other. What um, what happened there? How did you rechannel that that energy, that negative energy, into a positive situation? Well, I just I, I, I guess just knowing that my father wasn't here, and I just wanted to make him proud. And uh, you know, I've never seen a picture of my father. I don't know anybody on that side of the family. Um, the only thing I knew about my father, he was a heroin addict. And um, the day he got killed, my mother said that she told him to go home. Well, he didn't go straight home. He got he was caught up in the alley, and the guys killed him and hung him on on a meat hook or something like that. And then once the police came, all his intestines were on the ground. And I think like. For me, I, I just always, I, I was never bitter. I see a lot of kids that are very bitter that their parents were in their life or anything, but even going through the foster care and, and all the other hardship, I never was bitter. I just, I guess that that that, that negative uh, experience allowed me to channel it into negative, excuse me, into a positive way by just wanting to make my father proud and I don't want to give up. And I haven't given up, and it has brought me a long way. So do you think in some uh, passion uh, that Dr. Charles Drew uh, became a surrogate father, a father figure? Oh, absolutely. You mentioned that he was an educator. Um, oh, absolutely. Where did, yeah. he, where did he teach? Um, he taught at Howard University, and he taught up in a university in Canada. And... Um, that's where he, he, matter of fact, there's a dorm for all incoming freshmen at Howard University uh, named after him. But, yes, his, you know, everything about Dr. Charles Drew, I really try to emulate, even in, in how I dress, how I carry myself. Um, I just, I really, I, I really, I really have a great deal of my respect for that man, and I and I really believe in my heart that the Lord passed the baton to me to uh, carry on His legacy, and, and that's basically what I'm trying to do. Is a lot of time, I think it's up to the responsibility of the African American individual to not allow history to dissolve the work of those who have come before us and allow us to have the opportunities that we have today. So I'm just trying to do my little part and just by bringing shedding light to Dr. Charles Drew medical accomplishment and showing how his legacy has transformed my life and to try to show and demonstrate this generation, my generation, and beyond and over me that, you know what, I got what y'all was trying to do. Y'all was trying to come together and march and, 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 and fight for us to stand on y'all's shoulders and, and blaze a trail that will give y'all a sense of, of relief, of pride, and, and uh, hope that, uh, you know, someone didn't allow the, our work to be in vain. And that, that that's, that's that's just the way I feel about Dr. Charles Drew, Dr. Vivian Thomas, who is another inspiration to me, and Dr. King. Those three individuals are very intricate in who I am today. Now, and I really appreciate you um, sharing such personal information about your your life. 
And I think I also hear you saying that uh, black history uh, is very important to pass along to our children um, because it's made such a positive impact on your life. Uh, Thank you again for that. I really appreciate that. Now, moving on uh, with the blood uh, banks, talk to us about the prison system uh, in terms and how that related to uh, blood banks and what impact did that have on African Americans who were incarcerated? Well, and, well, Dr. Charles Drew is the pioneer of blood plasma, and blood plasma is a very unique product because it doesn't contain uh, red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets, but it but it also contains the same type of proteins and nutrients that's found in whole blood, and so. Plasma is a vital fluid for life. It's very universal. Um, You can use it for cardiovascular surgery treatment, blood transfusion. And now currently there is a plasma product called IVIG that's in clinical trial study, and it has shown promising results to help people with Alzheimer's disease. And so, as you know, Alzheimer's disease is is a worldwide epidemic. So there's a lot of money that's in this industry. But... Going back to the question, um, in 1960s, in the 1960s, I think it was 64, if I'm maybe mistaken, I could be wrong, 62 or 63, one of those years, but a doctor by the name of Michael Stile, him and another doctor had um, set up plasma uh, operation in the Oklahoma State Penitentiary. And what they would do was, you know, make an announcement to the black prisoners that they were doing this uh, plasma uh, drive and they will receive uh, some type of monetary benefit for their plasma efforts. But Dr. Stout, this he used the plasma drive in the prison system as an experiment phase to perfect the plasma technique, which is called plasmapheresis. And plasmapheresis, the definition of that is the separation of of the plasma from the blood, and it's a a machine, a separator, and it collects the blood, but it spins in a a bowl, and as it's doing the spinning, the, 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 the red blood cells and white blood cells and platelets are separated from the plasma. But a lot of African um, inmates died. From this, they accumulate a lot of diseases, so they was used as test objects, if I may say. So Dr. Style hooked up with this other these, these doctors in Europe, and so they was paid a lot of money. They was running successful uh, uh, plasma operations in the uh, uh, prison system. So Dr. Style, he... Uh, later on developed the style development group. And, and it's, it's very interesting because uh, I flew from Atlanta to Ohio to meet with Michael Style and Thomas Schumacher up in Ohio about developing my plasma center, you know, because they had the blueprint of developing FDA plasma centers. Well, not knowing later on down the road when I did some more research that Michael Stout's father, Dr. Stout, had set up the Stout Enterprise 
and blood plasma operation is a key core of their operation. Perkon, would you repeat that doctor's name again? Dr. Stout. It's S-T-O-U-G-H, Stout. S-T-O-U-G-H. Yeah, S-T-O-U-G-H. Okay. Thank you. So, um, and 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 so uh, Dr. Stout was, was racking in lots of money, and uh, his medical license was suspended several times because the loss of lives of those African Americans. So later on, so so then when the the, the foreign companies seen that he was able to produce a certain amount of volume of blood plasma, then they was like, well, let's try to since you was able to perfect your craft on the backs of African Americans, well, let's set up plasma centers outside of the prison. Now they can be successful businesses. Well, in the United States. Over 80% of the uh, plasma donation comes from African Americans. There are no African Americans that own a blood plasma center. I have been working religiously over the past, you know, 19 years to to level the playing field, you know, to to uh, repeat that again, Perquine. Over 80% of the plasma donation comes from African Americans. There are 80? no Af 80 percent. Of the plasma donation in the United States comes from African Americans. There are no African Americans that own a plasma center. There's you, uh, never. Excuse me a minute. What do you account? Why do you think that is? What's the, what's motivating uh, black folks to give blood in such high numbers? Well, there's a difference between donating whole blood and donating plasma. When you donate whole blood, it's basically volunteer. And the American Red Cross and other volunteer nonprofit blood banks, what they do is they take that whole blood and they break it down into different products and they sell to different hospitals for various uses. So they might have in that whole blood, uh, they might sell. They 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 are going to sell the red blood cells, the platelets, and they're going to sell the plasma. But that's not fresh plasma. It's it's called recovered plasma. So um, these these companies that 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 control this industry, you you have um, you have Baxter, which is an American company. They're located in Deerfield, Indiana, and you have Kedrin. Their hair their headquarters are located out located in Italy. So that's Italy. Then you have Biotest AG, which is located in Germany, and then you now, have. Cedar. Go ahead. Excuse me. Those. Those are blood banks you're mentioning now. They're overseas. Yes, what I, the, the the company name that I I'm mentioning, they are the global leaders that control and monopolize the plasma industry. And there are three other companies that's part of this list: Griffles of Spain and um, Octopharma of Switzerland. All these companies headquarters one, are located. One of those companies are called uh, Baxter. Baxter, correct. Okay. And then you have uh, Griffles of Spain and Octopharma of Switzerland. And so these companies control the, the global blood plasma uh, production. 90% of plasma and plasma products are shipped across the world, but it starts from the U.S. 
And these companies, even though their headquarters are located outside the United States, they have chains of plasma centers across the United States. And so in the plasma centers, if you go to any plasma center, you see that the majority of the people there are African American. And the reason why they receive financial rewards, you can donate plasma twice a week. And so you can get per uh, donation um, $25, and that's $50 a week, and it's about an hour of your time. So that's the reason why people, African-Americans, donate plasma is because of the financial contribution that they receive, the reward that they receive, whereas whole blood, you know, there's a low percentage of, of minorities that donate. That's why the American Red Cross is always trying to get African-Americans to donate blood because their percentage is, is low. And I, I will say on the show is that <clears throat> I stand here today humbly um, and proud that I'm here as a voice for those men that was used as the experimentation to create and develop the plasmapheresis technique for all the, the black men and women who were denied medical treatment and had to go to the basement, Lord Jesus, of medical facilities. I'm 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 a voice for Dr. Charles Drew, if I may say, and no disrespect to the Drew family, but I'm here to collect on those people's behalf. And I'm not talking about 40 acres in a mule. I'm talking about when it's time to talk about plasma production for this industry, I need to be at that table with the global leaders sitting down because if 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 my race is donating, we need to be a part of the economic growth opportunities, and 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 that's where my issue come in. And the only thing that's prohibiting me from launching my plasma center is a plasma contract. And I've approached all these companies over the over the years, and I have got the same old same old. Well, if you get your plasma center up, then we well, then we may no 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 no. In business one on one, nobody's not about to invest millions of dollars into a business and you don't have anyone to purchase your product. They know that. So today, one of my objectives is to say what I need to say so that the words can go where they need to go and the buzz can start to develop. Hey, we need to see what's going on about this plasma industry for real. We need to, and, and I feel like, you know, if, you know, we black people, we always support our entertainers. We always support our athletes. But we don't support stuff that, that's meaningful, like that young man, Tony Hansberry, down in uh, Florida at the University of uh, Florida A&M. This boy created a medical device to do some type of stitching uh, in a medical procedure. Uh, this young man out of Philadelphia who scored a perfect score on the SAT. That to me, we we don't we don't we don't support. We just support you know this foolishness, man. This pain, this just foolishness. Well, and that's not what that's just that's just not what our people died for. That's not that's not black history to me. Yes, sir. Perkin, I want to get back to this global. Uh, blood business, and I recall, do you uh, recall when Clinton got into some trouble as he was using uh, tainted Prism. blood, HIV yeah. blood from inmates there in Arkansas? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that. And uh, 
Well, it, it is against FDA policies to collect plasma from um, prison system, as you mentioned, the Bill Clinton situation. All this is under the umbrella of Dr. Stout. As a matter of fact, in the 1960s, Time magazine had did an article about this because it had raised its questions about racism and so forth, about the procedures and the methods, how this individual was coming up with this plasma technique. But um, the FDA has done a great job in, with the regulatory component to make sure that uh, every plasma center governs by their compliance to meet regular uh, uh, industry standards to produce a very quality product. So I will say that and stand proudly to say the FDA has done a great job with that. So as far as uh, tainted plasma getting into the, the population uh, of producing plasma products, uh, it's very uh, minimal. I mean, they have so many tests now that can detect diseases before they even mature into the diseases that they are. So is it safe to say that um, in other countries where someone might have contracted AIDS, that was because of black inmates' HIV blood? Say that again. Could it we say then that due to uh, Clinton sending that uh, tainted blood to other countries, and in those countries, if they can, if someone contracted HIV disease, it could have been from the blood that was transported from the United States, from the Arkansas State Penitentiary? It's a possibility during that time, but over the past, I think, 30 years, I think that was like back in the 80s when that happened. But since then, um, there have not used or any reports about tainted plasma um, being shipped out. Like I say, the FDA has a very good infrastructure system in place to monitor the blood, excuse me, the blood plasma supply. So I, I don't know. I, I can't, I, I don't know. Maybe during that time, um, some of the plasma that was um, collected at those prison systems could have gotten into the uh, the general production for plasma products. I don't know, but as of the last 25, 30 years since that incident, there the, the, the incidence has been very minimal. Do you think that's a good policy to be um, uh, placing a price on blood in that you know, that's a God-given resource that we as human beings have. Should we be placing a price on that? Well, it depends. You know, it, I mean, it depends on who the person is and how you look at it. I personally look at it as that it's a, it's a product that can help and extend the patient, excuse me, help extend the lives of patients throughout the world. As our mission statement at CP Plasma is, our objective is to explore in the field of plasma proteins to manufacture and supply high-quality remedial treatment that elevates and extends the lives of patients throughout the world. So as far as the uh, the blood plasma product helping extend the lives of patients, I'm, I am all in support of that. Um, we live in a world where money is, 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 is pretty much the lifeline. I mean, if you want to cripple a country, just eliminate the economic um, source to it. So um, to put a price on blood plasma, is it fair? 
I don't think so. I mean, I, I think it's I, I think it's fair. I think it's fair because you know you want to be able to produce and continue to produce, so you have to have revenue coming in to continue to help save lives. Well, interesting uh, point of view there. So could we extend that out and say that uh, organ donors, that the survivors and descendants of organ donors should be paid for donating livers, kidneys, eyes, or what have you? You think it should extend that far? It's a possibility. I think, I mean, when you get your driver license, you, you ask, are you going to volunteer, donate your organs in case something was to happen to you? So um, that's a volunteer thing. This is a business, and this is for-profit. This is not non-profit. So it's about making money, and I want to be a part of this business, not only to stimulate economic growth, but to invest into my communities through nonprofit organizations. They are the lifeline of our community, but they lack resources to make an impact. So that's one that's another motivation for me to uh invest back into those uh organizations that make a change in how we live and work. We have an email here and um the question is how can you support that idea or can you support that idea with biblical text? Hmm. And that in a Christian world, um, we rely on faith and brotherly love. But I guess that would uh, cover the volunteer side. Um, so would there be anything in biblical text that would support the business side? Well, of According to Leviticus 17:11, you know, there's life in the blood, and that is a biblical scripture. And from the business aspect of this business is to produce plasma, which is blood, and to uh, help people who have medical deficiency that can be controlled by a product made from blood plasma. So from a, a biblical scripture to say does the uh, does the Bible support a plasma center? Um, I don't think there's a biblical scripture to talk about supporting any type of business. If I could be wrong, but in my research, I have not come across that as of yet. But if someone was to email you and put it out there, I would definitely go up and look it up and research it. But um, I don't think that there's a, there's a biblical issue for opening up a plasma center. Um, I think that from from a biblical perspective, this plasma center is my platform to preach God's word to show my testimony because we are we Revelation says we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. So this plasma center is is not only a business, but it's also a platform to preach God's word and to provide a product to help extend by throughout the world. So I hope that I address that question. Okay, and that was Leviticus 17.11. Correct. For the Correct. life of, yes. For the life of a creature in the blood. There's life in the blood. That's my um, that's my slogan. There's life in the blood. Mm-hmm. So this was a vision from God. Um, he gave me this vision back in 1994 and in 1997, I was taking a test 
at Georgia State University, senior nursing student. I gave the professor my test, and I haven't looked back. And so it's been a faith walk ever since then. And today, sitting here today just thinking about what I had to go through just to be sitting here talking to you on this interview, very mm-hmm. humble, very humble, very humble. What would you say to those who um, would say that the Bible puts money before charity and that no one should be getting paid? I know you addressed that somewhat. What would you uh, what would you say to those individuals? Well, you know, you're going to have people with a lot of opinions about whatever you do in life. And as a believer in the man of the cloth, it's just my job to try try my best to serve folks as best way I can and to make God's uh, perfect will established here in the supernatural to give him glory. And I, I think that people just going to have different opinions. They're just going to have different yeah. opinions. So I, okay. I can. All right, we can move on. Um Tell us about this, and what do you have to say about this new technology that allows an individual to store their own blood and use um, that blood for their own surgery, for any blood loss experienced during surgery? I think that that's 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 a way to address the the um, supply. Um, that's a great way to, just in case you get into a car accident or have some type of major surgery, you have blood stored up for operation. Um, is it good? I don't see why not. It would be a bad thing. Yeah. And how long would blood last? I mean, uh, you know, if I'm uh, 20 years old and I start donating my blood to use somewhere in the future, how often would I have to donate? Well, with technology the way it is, you can extend the life of blood, the the, the blood shelf, the, the the duration period of that, that whole blood. And if I'm not mistaken, I think the way it is now that you can store whole blood for about a year, and after that you will have to discard it. So... I'm not real familiar with this process because that's dealing with whole blood. That's a whole section that I'm not familiar. I'm I'm an expert in blood plasma. If you want to know about plasma, I'm that guy. So it's uh, would the same thing account for plasma? Could I store my plasma to be used later? I never heard of someone doing that. Okay. But the unique thing about uh, plasma is that it have a, a longer duration period than whole blood because it doesn't have the red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets. But the people in the plasma industry only give that plasma a certain amount of life before they dis- discard it because the plasma industry top priority is to produce a fresh product. And I mentioned later in the um, program about recovered plasma and fresh plasma. Recovered plasma is plasma that's from a donor who donates at the American Red Cross or other nonprofit blood banks. That's recovered plasma because they take the whole blood cell, the 
excuse me, the, the bag of whole blood and they put it in the machine and it separates, it breaks that whole blood down. Whereas fresh plasma, whereas fresh plasma comes from a donor who walks into a plasma center and they donate the plasma and the quicker that you can get the plasma, process it correctly and put it in the freezer, the fresher that plasma becomes. So it's fresher because it's not broken down and it coming straight from the donor straight into the freezer. So the, 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 the quality of plasma has an impact on the quality of the plasma product. So that's why the plasma industry relies totally on frozen fresh plasma rather than recovered plasma. Wow, quite a feat. Um, I want to remind the listeners that if they uh, have a question uh, before we leave the air or comment, they can do that at 347-324-5552. Yeah, this uh, whole topic, I never understood the breakdown between plasma and blood. So what I heard you saying, if I go in and see that needle go in and blood come out, that there's a process where they can separate or draw out the plasma from that blood. Am I getting that right? You own it. You're a great listener. It's a machine called the PCS2, the Plasma Collection System. And when I started off in the plasma industry, you had the PCS1 and it was a big old machine, but now it, the machine is compact and how they increase the speed of the bowl that's inside, it's called the separator, uh, is through a chip now. They just upgrade. It's the same physical um, machine, but they just keep incorporating different chips. So um, once that needle is inserted into the vein, the blood goes into the machine, and the machine spins it, there's an empty bottle attached to the machine, the plasma goes into the machine, and the blood goes back. The whole blood, the red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets go back into the donor's body. That way the donor is able to donate twice a week, every 48 hours, compared to donating whole blood, because when you donate whole blood, it takes the body about eight weeks to replenish those things that was lost through whole blood donation. Okay. Right there. All right. Donating whole blood. What is the process, and maybe you said it, but help me understand and maybe our listeners, that donating the whole blood, what is the process? Well, it's, it's similar to donating, donating blood plasma. The difference is, is that, as I mentioned earlier, donating whole blood is volunteer. Donating plasma is 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 for profit. It's for um, profit. Okay. So no, whole blood is non-profit. Plasma is for profit. So the American Red Cross is making a lot of money because by it being non-profit, they make they they break the the blood down and they sell it to hospitals and stuff like that. So, but anyway, to um to finish up the comparison between donating whole blood and plasma, they are similar. The other difference is that you go to a blood bank, whereas plasma center, you go to a plasma center. Um, but as far as the questionnaire and things of that nature, donor 
um, evaluation, uh, that's pretty much the same. Whereas in uh, the, the, the plasma industry, they have a unique system where sometimes donors would go to different plasma centers and they would donate multiple times. So they will create. So they have created a system to make sure that the donor does not donate more than he or she is allowed per week. So that's the difference between a whole blood uh, donation and a plasma donation. And who regulates the industry? Uh, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. They they regulate. They regulate it from a regulatory perspective, meaning that they have an instru- uh, infrastructure system in place to make sure that the plasma and blood supply um, doesn't contain the diseases that will affect others in a negative way. And to add on to that, other countries are uh, subjected to different types of diseases that America doesn't have. So that's why the plasma supply uh, is really controlled in the United States and is you know, shipped all over the world because other countries have different diseases like the mad cow disease and stuff like that. But, you know, my ultimate goal is to um, develop the plasma product, the IVIG, and to uh, create a, a business relationship with Nigeria because they have, Nigeria and Brazil because they have a very high percentage of sickle cell. And one of the unique things about the plasma product is that it is showing promising signs as well for those individuals affected with the sickle cell anemia issue. So that's another um, goal through this plasma center is to take the plasma from the United States and go help Brazil and, and Africa. Okay, um, we're uh, we're out of time. This has been a very uh, instructive uh, interview and show, and I really appreciate uh, your coming on and I appreciate the the level, the depth that you went through in terms of sharing your personal history. Are there any websites that our listeners should be on the lookout for, any magazines or any uh, that you were featured in, any press releases that you're featured in? And uh, we'll probably want to get you back in the future uh, for a oh, future program. Absolutely. Um, on my Facebook wall, um, I have all my media, um, publications, press releases and stuff. And on CP Plasma Center Facebook, um, you can also see all the media um, attention that I have received. But for me, the most gratifying um, media publication was to be in the SELC magazine recently Um the organization that Dr. Martin Luther King um, founded here in Atlanta, Georgia. And, you know, I know that I'll eventually be in time and black enterprise and other things like that. But for me, to be in the SELC means a lot. And the reason why I say that is because <clears throat> our generation, you know, has not, you know, uh, met the challenge from the old generation. And so to receive support from the old guards, it means a lot to me, you know, because, you know, they are the one that was on the battlefield. So to stand on the shoulders of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Joseph Lowry, MLK III, um, Ralph Abernathy, all those great men to stand on their shoulders and to 
tell people, the world, about my testimony and, and my uh, plasma um, pursuits, it just, to me, that's the most gratifying media publication. That also is uh, on the Facebook or CP Plasma Center and my personal Facebook, Urquan R. Stafford Senior on Facebook. Okay, so give us uh, give us a spelling on your first and last names on that Facebook page. Absolutely. It's for Quan, F-U-R-Q-U-A-N, middle initial R. Last name is Stafford, S-T-A-F-F-O-R-D. S-R is abbreviation for senior. Um, and my company Facebook page is CP Plasma Center, Inc. So it's C period P period Plasma, P-L-A-S-M-A, Center, Inc. Very good. And I Go also ahead. have a and I also have a Twitter page. It's just my initials F R S S R. That's my uh, Twitter account as well. And I want to say thank you so much to Leslie Gist for the opportunity. And I'm just so humbled because she put my picture with um, the other blacks that have done some great things in the community. And uh, it just really means a great deal to me, and I'm really thankful for the opportunity to be on the show today. And it's much deserved, Perkwan. It's much deserved. You've done quite a bit, and we appreciate it. And as I say, we'll probably have you back on in the future. And I want to thank you for joining us tonight, and I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. My name is Preston Washington. I've been your host. And uh, good night, everybody. Good night, Perkwan. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Good night. Okay. Good night.